The GOP's recent attempt to defang the Office of Congressional Ethics by putting it under the control of other congressmen instead of keeping it as an independent agency was a really dumb idea. Really, really dumb. It doesn't take a hardened politico to know that if you vote to take away the independence of the ethics agency that watches over you, it looks like you either have something to hide or expect some pretty unethical stuff to come out of your side over the next couple years. So, politically, this was a mess. That's out of the way. But the media coverage of this episode has distorted the fact that the GOP was trying to solve a real problem. Don't get me wrong, their solution in this case would have been worse than the problem. But that doesn't mean that congressional ethics reform should be forgotten. There are real problems with the Office of Congressional Ethics. Put simply, the OCE is not as powerful as it wants to be. The OCE has no subpoena power, and it often targets low-level Hill staffers for petty rules infractions so that they can force them to turn on their bosses. According to PolitiFact, the OCE has, quote, a tendency to handle preliminary reviews in marginal cases as if they were criminal prosecutions. In its nine years of existence, the OCE has referred 60 members of Congress to the Congressional Ethics Committee, and only two have seen any sort of discipline. In other words, the OCE often is bored, and so treats all cases as if they're the next Jack Abramoff scandal. You might say that it's not a big deal if the OCE is targeting a few 20-something Hill staffers for petty reasons, and in the grand scheme of things, it's not. But PolitiFact also points out how political consultants have learned how bad it looks to be under an ethics violation investigation to an American electorate obsessed with the idea of corrupt politicians and draining the swamp. You can be sure that most of these congressmen who were investigated by the OCE, but not disciplined, had a ton of negative ads run against them for being, quote, under corruption investigation, end quote. And if you believe that an independent agency like the OCE is above feeding partisan attacks like that, I have a free tuition plan to sell you. I'm not arguing in favor of the GOP's move, remember. It was dumb politically, and it probably would have made ethics investigations even more partisan. But there is a clear lack of due process that currently goes into the political ramifications of ethics investigations, and that's a problem. Ethics investigations' sole purpose should be to prevent and punish unethical behavior, not to be a political cudgel against one's enemies. But so it goes in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Liberties and Policies, because you can have both. Maintenance of a free society is a very difficult and complicated thing. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. But power must be restrained because no one knows who will next hold that power. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Hello and welcome to the third episode of Liberties and Policies. I'm your host, Andrew. First off, I'd like to apologize about the delay between this episode and the last one. I'm going to try to keep to a schedule of an episode every two weeks, but unfortunately the holiday season and a nasty bout of sickness made it hard to plan and record an episode, so I apologize for that. That aside, good news to all of you who are getting tired of my voice. I'm joined today by my new co-host, Andy, and um, we have very similar names, so I'm sorry for that also. Well, welcome, Andy. Thanks for the introduction. Um, I'm happy to be here to talk about these issues, so without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into the meat of this week's episode. 
all these issues we're going to be covering this week fall under an umbrella of political ethics. Rather than asking whether or not something is legal or illegal, we're going to be looking at whether or not something is fair in the spirit of elections and political power. As such, we'll be covering the topics of fake news, midnight regulations, and campaign finance. So go ahead and start us off, Andrew. Alright, so the first thing to talk about today is the topic of fake news. So first, let me define fake news, because that's a term that's kind of floating around out there, and it's, it's used a lot of different ways, and it's kind of taken on a life of its own. But we're defining fake news as news that is deliberately incorrect and intended to drive a narrative with stories of things that never happened. So no one is arguing that this is not a problem, right, Andy? Absolutely. But the question is really, what do we do about it? And there's kind of two possible options that have been going on. So A, the government regulates it, or B, the private company should regulate it themselves. And I mean, if we look at the, the question of the government regulating it, there's a whole lot of problems with that, especially due to censorship and First Amendment rights. And there's an inherent danger as well of you know allowing the government to censor what information uh, would be allowed to, to be seen by the public, because that means whoever's in power gets to control their narrative. Right. That's a slippery slope. But let's be fair. I mean, most Democrats aren't calling for that, right? I mean, at least not not overtly. Um, private companies, many of them are saying that private companies should regulate themselves. Uh, so this is where we get into things like Facebook. And um, can you talk to us a bit about the, the conflict between, you know, bias and fake news? So Facebook actually used to have employees that would pick out deliberately misleading articles. But people ended up complaining about these employees because the, the employees were inevitably human. They had some kind of bias. And most of the employees working at Facebook tended to be a little bit more on the liberal side. And so what happened was plenty of conservatives complained about bias, and so Facebook switched to the fully automated system. But because they switched to a fully automated system, we started seeing fake news popping up in the trending section. Right. So at this point, some of you might be thinking that this is a private company and it can do what it pleases. And legally, you are correct. However, just because something is legally acceptable does not mean it's a good idea. The point of the First Amendment is to ensure that Americans have access to the full marketplace of ideas so that the best ones win out. Just because a private company's actions do not violate the First Amendment does not mean that their actions do not violate the purpose behind the First Amendment. So let's go into the pro some of the problems that exist with this anti-fake news crusade. So one of them is satirical news, right? There's, there's a conflict there. So yeah, liberals and you know actually myself, you know, being libertarian, are huge fans of satirical news. They, oh, you know, I love news it sites, too. news sites such as The Onion, uh, Clickhole. Basically, they're <laughs> they're not actually providing you news, but they're funny, right? And to certain people who are scrolling through their Facebook feed, they might think, well, oh my God, this article, it's a it's actually from The Onion, but they don't pay attention to that. Yeah, I mean, I I know personally, I, I like like you, I read the Onion and Click Hall all the time, and nothing knuckle nothing tickles me more than when someone is like angry about an Onion article because they they don't realize it's fake. But you know, when people think that it's real, it might actually drive their political beliefs. So some people might think that that's a problem, but you know, that's not something that we should be we should be regulating, right? Right. And certainly to some people who think that, you know, the onion is disadvantaging their political opinion, right? They might treat the onion as fake news, which it actually is, mm -hmm. right? And if we're going to be banning fake news, satirical news, which might be enjoyable to certain people just for the comedic effect, might be the first to go. Right. And I mean, definitely as, you know, as people who are on the right side of the spectrum, organizations like the onion and Clickhole are not friendly to our political beliefs most of the time i mean most of the articles they write are very you know 
they're they're satirizing the the right so you know just because something is against us does not mean we we should we should be okay with uh with banning it but also i mean who watches the watchers right I mean, the Facebook employees are hardly unbiased, like yeah. previously mentioned. And so if we're going to bring them back, you know, they've already been known to suppress conservative news from the trending section. I mean, it's not exactly a good idea to replace the concept of fake news with biased news. Right. And let's let's talk about what this is from a 30,000 foot view. I mean, this represents a form of condescending paternalism that assumes Americans are just too stupid to be exposed to the big, scary world of information out there and that they must be force-fed the information that is approved by our benevolent overlords. So then, you know, what should be done about fake news? Well, for those who are concerned about truth and concerned about their information, they should really be encouraging people to corroborate their information from multiple sources or more respected sources, rather than looking at a small-time newspaper you know, look at the small-time newspaper, but also see if any any newspapers, you know, Wall Street Journal or you know, The Economist, has actually reported on the same issue, right? Right. I mean, the first thing I do whenever I see an article on Facebook that I find surprising is immediately I look at, I you know, a five-second Google can often disprove uh, things that you see. Um, so, but before we we told you that there are two options uh, for for how to deal with this. We said that the government could regulate it or private companies could regulate it. And we lied to you, that was fake news. Uh, the free market has already provided a response to this in the form of fact checkers. Currently, fact checkers do tend to have a bit of a liberal bias, but this is largely because it is currently liberals who are most concerned with the idea of fake information, since you know many of them believe that that played a large part in Trump's, in Trump's victory. Um, also, fact checkers get their revenue from shares and clicks on social media. And guess what? Conservatives don't really use social media as often. That being said, facts are a good thing. Conservatives should embrace the pursuit for truth and create a demand for fact checking of the same caliber for the liberal media as well. Even with liberal fact checkers, liberals are often caught lying. These moments should be jumped on by conservatives on social media in order to create this demand. Indeed, I think, you know, if the conservatives really pushed for the social media angle, right, um, there would be more conservative fact checkers who would be out there, you know, checking liberal statements as well. Right. And I mean, there's nothing I think there's no there's plenty of, of stuff to get there. Uh, there's there's a lot of times where we see not just not just outright lies, but very, very strong bias. And I think there's there's a real market for conservatives who who do this, who want to do this in a reputable way. Um I think oftentimes when conservatives try to make these sort of watchdog sites like this, they tend to they tend to go too red meat, and that that sort of discredits them. But we could have a very uh, legitimate forum that you know did a good job of of watching bias like this. All right, so let's move on to our next topic for today, which is midnight regulations. So again, first some definitions and background. Midnight regulations are the term for regulations enacted during the lame duck period of an outgoing president. Often, when a presidential administration is about to hand the reins of power to a president of a different party, the outgoing president's administration creates a flurry of rules and regulations all at once in an attempt to get out as many as possible while they still can. So, well, it comes as no surprise that President Obama's his administration is churning out regulations at what could be a record pace. It's worth discussing, since these regulations often slip under the radar, despite having a large effect on the American economy. So, Andy, let's talk about midnight regulations. So there's a few reasons why they're a problem. Um, 
One of them is that Midnight Regulations are churned out with a primary emphasis of getting as many done as possible. And regulatory effectiveness, as much as that might sound like an oxymoron, and oversight, which also is a bit of an oxymoron, both suffer as a result. It's the equivalent of when you did your homework at 3 in the morning back in high school, except in this case, the, the homework affects people's lives and the economy. But I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate with you here. I mean, the people who voted in Obama, right, voted him in to uh, for him to lead four years, right? Mm -hmm. So certainly Obama is doing this a bit late. Nobody's just, uh, you know, nobody's discussing that. But it's still within the constraints of his power, right? I mean, certainly the lame duck period doesn't stop him from taking action. Right. And but like many things, even though it's not illegal, it's a bad idea. Um, Obama's regulations are done through regulatory agencies without congressional approval. This means that the decisions are made without debate by elected officials or any means of accountability to the public. And oftentimes, part of the reason why there's such such little accountability is that people don't really pay attention to regulations. You know, they're not they're not sexy. They're not constantly debated in the in no no one's arguing about the latest the latest regulation that just came down the pipes that that it doesn't tie into some some broader political issue. But they often have a large effect, and that's part of the reason why uh, they need to they need to be scrutinized more. And certainly tacking onto that, I mean, there's so many regulations that are constantly being churned out because there's just so many government agencies, right? right. And it's very difficult for people to keep track of it, unlike you know keeping track of a bill which is generally um, you know sponsored by some 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 senator and somebody cares about it, and it's pretty apparent. Right. And in a in a previous episode, I went into a little bit the. Uh, the the macroeconomic effects of of regulate of regulatory growth, but you know we have to remember that that happens a little bit at once. You know it's it's a bunch of regulations that that go into this massive economic effect that regulations have on our economy. And while it's easy to say that you know we want fewer regulations, we think the regulatory burden is is becoming excessive. We we need to we need to get more into looking at specific regulations that are wasteful and and are hurting our economy. All right, and uh, so let's let's go into another reason why uh, this midnight regulations are a problem. So a lot of midnight regulations are highly political, and they're likely to be repealed as soon as the next president enters office. In in this case, the president-elect Trump. Um, for businesses, this creates a ton of uncertainty. Businesses have to guess whether or not a regulation is worth complying with or if it'll be moot in a couple months. Um, this is anytime you have uncertainty like this, this is really hard for businesses. Um, so, you know, you, you want to always, you, bus good businesses plan a few months down the road. And if you're, if you're trying to guess what the climate, what the regulatory climate is going to be a few months down the road, your planning is probably not going to be that good. And certainly this is really dangerous for any business because, I mean, they could suffer they, they could suffer from, in the short term, you know, getting tagged for compliance issues. But mm -hmm. they could also expect, oh, well, if President Trump is going to repeal this, I can choose not to uh, comply. And then months down the line, it turns out President Trump repealed some other bills mm -hmm. but didn't repeal this one. Right. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's a problem. But also so many regulations at once can be a problem of their own. Uh, regulatory compliance, as we said, is not cheap, and it often requires a team of lawyers to make sure that your business is following the latest rules and regulations. So this is a problem for smaller businesses even in a normal regulatory climate, and a surge in regulations only makes this problem worse. A study between November 8th and December 31st found 145 regulations, new regulations with an economic cost of $21 billion. 
By contrast, the average monthly output from January up until November of 2016 was 45 regulations. So this is a big surge. Right. And, you know, furthermore, regardless of whether or not people like the outcome of the election, right, the election process has decided on someone from Obama's opposing party. Right. If anything, this should act as a vote of no confidence to the Democrats, and they should be taking less, not more actions during the lame duck period. So do you think this is the issue, though? I mean, I, I think that the the big problem here is the the effect on the, the amount of regulations that come out, as well as their their effectiveness and their uh, the amount of oversight we see on them. I think that's certainly the practicality uh, of, of why we don't want these midnight regulations. But philosophically looking at it, right, um, there's, there has to be some kind of accountability for the, for the presidential office, um, given that it has so much power over all these agencies. And the way that we have that accountability is elections. And you know, regardless of, of you know, what people say, the elections resulted in a Trump victory, <laughs> right? And people have to people have to learn to to accept that yeah. people including obama mm-hmm. meaning that certainly we shouldn't we shouldn't be encouraging obama to take more action that the the trump presidency would later have to deal with right okay i i think that what you're saying here is that the problem isn't that there are regulations coming during the the lame duck period but that there's so many of them that he's kind of taking advantage of the last few months he has to to push out as many as possible right okay all right, so let's let's also you know um, make a point here that the the problem with all of these regulations is not that they're anti-free market, right? Absolutely. I mean, there there are certain Obama regulations that are actually really really good for the free market. There's Obama regulations to help employers hire and retain high skilled immigrant workers to be carried out through the DHS or the Office of U.S. and Trade Representative that has been working on a bilateral investment treaty with China, right? Now, at heart, these are good and free market-oriented policies, but they're procedurally incorrect. They're done without the approval of Congress, mm-hmm. right? And furthermore, the point still stands that you know, these new rules create uncertainty, which is bad for all the parties involved. I mean, imagine what would happen if an employer hired a high-skilled worker overseas only to have Trump repeal the policy a couple of months later. What would happen to the employer? Would he have to you know, find a new qualified employee somewhere? And how about the immigrant, right? What would happen to their worker visa status, right? So the point is that had the Democrats pushed this through Congress before Obama's lame duck period, right, these rules would have far more protections and would help to boost economic growth without the uncertainty. Right. It's back to, back to what we were saying before about uncertainty being really bad for a business climate. Well, so there's, there's a bit of good news, though, for those worried about these midnight regulations. Uh, the House has passed the Midnight Rules Relief Act, which would allow Congress to repeal the regulations with a single resolution instead of one at a time as as in the past. But even so, the damage is done, and it's something to worry about for the future. But for future regulations, the, the RAINS Act, which I mentioned in a previous podcast, passed the House on January 5th, and hopefully this will help keep in check the growth of the regulatory state as it moves uh, moves through Congress. All right, so let's move on to our final our final segment for today, which is to go over an issue. Uh, this week, we will be going over the issue of campaign finance regulations, which, as we said before, uh, ties in very well, if we may say so ourselves, uh, to our general theme of political ethics for this week. So let's start out with what the state of campaign finance is right now. Campaign finance laws are things that people make careers out of knowing. So let's just go into the basics of it. What are campaign finance laws right, like right now? 
All right, so without, well, trying not to bore you to death too much, in, in terms of contributions, individuals can contribute $2,700 to a given candidate in a primary and $2,700 more in a general election. Individuals can also form political action committees, also known as PACs, and donate $5,000 of their own money to them. Without getting too into the weeds, PACs can, PACs can essentially donate $5,000 to a given candidate. Super PACs are where the controversy comes in. Super PACs are able to raise unlimited sums of money and keep their donors anonymous from the general public, though not from the FEC. Many people consider Super PACs to be the cause of corruption in politics. And Super PACs arose out of the Supreme Court case of Citizens United. Now, this decision in the case basically said the government cannot fine or jail citizens for engaging in political speech. And as part of this speech, the case justifies the spending of money on political activity. Right. So as I said, a lot of groups and individuals have spun this decision as allowing rich people who can pour money into super PACs to have a disproportionate amount of influence on politics. So I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. Why should rich people have more voice than poor people? Well, what's the inherent difference between someone who spends time doing something and someone who spends money doing something? Let's take, for example, two identical people, right? One goes to volunteer for a candidate, while another goes to work or earns money, and donates it to the candidate. Both of them want to support the candidate that shares their views, right? Mm -hmm. Both of them want to be politically involved. Why is one a recognized form of speech and the other isn't? Right, I think that's a good point. I mean, there's a lot of people with disproportionate influence on politics. I mean, look at news anchors, for one. They, they're able to uh, present, present information to you in the way that they see fit. And, you know, many of them do have a personal bias, and sometimes that bleeds through. Um, also, you see this with Twitter personalities, um, especially celebrities. I mean, I have already ranted about this many times, and I believe that there are people who have no more knowledge about the issues than the average American you find on the street, and yet they won't shut up. But, you know, it's still legal, right? I mean, that being said, right, if we were to, if we were ta to talk about getting rid of the Citizens United decision like a lot of uh, people have tried to talk about, you know, that, how, how do you think that would impact you know, the celebrities' uh, ability to speak out, right? I mean, certainly yeah. their speech is worth far more money than, than yours or mine, right? And even though we might not like the things that they say because they don't really know what they're saying, they're still allowed to speak out on it. And part of that is because of the decision of Citizens United. Right, and also there's just, there's always people who have, to each person whose views matter more to them. I mean, you know, there's, for some people it might be religious leaders, for some people it might be community leaders, for some people it might be your parents. I mean, all those people have a disproportionate amount of influence on your political views. Uh, but once you start getting too, once you start attempting to equalize that playing field, it's just, it's a recipe for disaster. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about this then. I mean, a frequent phrase you'll hear is that money isn't speech. So why are we saying that money is speech? Well, if money is not speech, then why are people so concerned about it? If it's not speech, it's not a problem, right? I mean, people who are opposed to the Citizens United decision clearly do recognize that money is speech. They just don't like some of the form that the speech takes. But, I mean, let's, let's get a little bit more into the form that the speech takes, right? I mean, political advertisement is, is probably the biggest way that this money is spent. And, I mean, I, I kind of want to ask, well... Like, if a political advertisement tells you to, to vote for a candidate, and you go out and 
look into the information about this candidate. You like this guy. You vote for this guy. How is that different from, you know, a friend saying, hey, vote for this candidate, right? You look into it, you like it, and you vote for it, right? It's not. (laughs) Absolutely, right? And, I mean, certainly, right, uh, uh, political advertisement, or actually all advertisement, is trying to get you to look at information or look into something, right? And these are issues that people care about. Certainly, I mean, you know, to, to the others, to the people who will say, well, they don't know anything about it. That might be true, right? But the point of an advertisement is to get you to look into something, bring it up to your attention, and get you to make a decision on it, right? Right. And I mean, political advertisements have to say who they're, uh, you know, what their source is. So it's not like that's hidden. Um, you, when you see a political advertisement, I mean, no one is under the impression that this is an unbiased thing. I mean, right. I, I think you'd have to be, you pretty much have to have your head in the sand to not know that a political advertisement is extremely biased. And um, even at the end of the day, right, the person who receives the advertisement, right, still has to decide whether or not the advertisement is valid. Right. Right. And they they still have the option of looking up facts and informing themselves. Right. The advertisement just gives them that that leg in first. Yeah. I mean, I I can't see how we how we benefit as a society by reducing the amount of political discourse we have. Certainly. So playing devil's advocate to another point, then, I mean, since conservatives and libertarians are always against cronyism. Right. How is allowing corporations to freely donate? not encouraging a crony relationship between government and companies. Right. Okay, that's a great question, Andy. And I think libertarians struggle with this one a lot. First, there's the basic point that just because a corporation is donating to a candidate does not mean that the candidate receiving the money has adopted a certain position in order to get that corporation's money. Oftentimes, it is the other way around. A corporation sees a candidate take a position that it sees as business-friendly, and it donates to protect its interests. Corporations aren't people, sure, but they're a part of our economy, and should have the right to advocate for their interests, even when we don't like what they're, what they're supporting. But for those of you who are recoiling at this idea and pointing out that corporations already have way more access to Capitol Hill than the average American, let me make another more important point. If you're concerned with the amount of money in politics, doesn't it seem like the answer to this would be to make the government less of an economic prize? The amount of government intervention in and control over the economy currently makes having influence in Washington, D.C. a goldmine for corporations. If D.C. left more of the economy up to the free market, then corporations would have much less reason to want to spend to have access in D.C. Certainly, we're attacking the symptom here and not the problem, right? Then, right. I mean, the people who are concerned about about campaign finance laws are really not seeing the 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 growing government as the reason why these corporations are continuing to funnel money into it. Right, and I mean, we we see this a lot where it's hardly just that Republicans, who are often considered to be more business friendly are receiving money from big corporations. And often this is because, you know, Democrats will support things like increased regulations, which large businesses will often support. I mean, you'll you'll often see a large business push for a regulation that hurts it a little bit because it makes it impossible for new businesses to enter the market. But, you know, we, we still see that uh, businesses are supportive across the spectrum. So let's close this out on a more philosophical ground then. Why do you think that campaign finance is such an appealing issue to so many people? Well, it's really not about whether or not money is a form of speech, or if corporations have a right to to advocate for their interests. Campaign finance laws appeal to people because they appeal to our most base narcissistic tendencies. 
It is the ultimate intellectual tooting of one's own horn to believe that the reason why there are people who disagree with you is that there are loud liars out there who are deceiving them. Rather than confront the fact that there are others who have valid reasons for believing differently than yourself, why not simply say that they have been lied to? If you believe that Americans are so dumb and sheep-like that they follow the orders of whatever political advertisement happens to appear most often on their television, then I can see why Citizens United would be an issue to you. This is just like the idea of fake news, which is another scapegoat for explaining why there are people with different philosophies out there. If you believe this, to be honest, I can't imagine why you would support any form of democracy at all. I mean, certainly, right, if we're looking at at trying to shut up all the people who, who think differently from you, right, we're dil diluting the core concept of the marketplace of ideas, right? We're right. no longer engaging in intellectual debate and engaging in political debate to see which political philosophy brings about better results. Mm -hmm. All you're attempting to do is trying to silence rather than convince. Right. So if, however, you believe that Americans are intelligent enough to make decisions on their own, I hope you will see Citizens United as the protection to our fundamental right to express ourselves as citizens in a democratic and free society. All right. Well, that concludes our show for today. We'll be back in a couple weeks. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, or pressing concerns, please email us at libertiesandpolicies at gmail.com. Also, if you feel so inclined, we would greatly appreciate you heading over to our Patreon and becoming a donor. Uh, no amount is too small, and it all goes towards producing a better podcast for you guys. Also, you can get yourself a cool shirt. So uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks for tuning in. Government is the problem.